So Jesus is condemned at Pontius Pilate's Praetorium and carries his cross to Calvary where he is ultimately crucified. This route between the two places is called the Via Dolorosa, which literally means the way of suffering. Now since the 4th century, Christian pilgrims have walked along an approximate route without really claiming historical accuracy that, hey, this is the one that Jesus walked on. But in the 19th century, Catholics sanctioned a route that is widely traveled today, especially on Good Friday. Now, although this is established by posted signs and traditions, it may or well may not be the exact route that Jesus traveled. And there's a few reasons for that. First, the Bible does not say exactly where this route is. I mean, it tells us the starting place, Pontius Pilate's palace, and then his destination, Mount Calvary. But the exact in-between is only a guess. And second, the oldest cobblestone paths today were built by Hadrian about 100 years after Jesus' crucifixion. So, it's even entirely possible that the exact route may not even exist today. And finally, the traditional route starts with Pilate judging Jesus at a place called the Antonia Fortress, which stood at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. Now, it was originally built to protect the temples, little fortress by the temple, but see, that could not have been where Pilate judged Jesus because Mark and John tell us that it's Pilate's Praetorium, and the Praetorium was at the governor's residence. We know this because Josephus, the historian, tells us that the Roman governor resided in Herod the Great's palace. And Herod the Great's palace was located by the Tower of David, which fortunately still stands today. So, for me, I'm going to go with this, saying that the starting place should not be the traditional route, which begins at a place called the Antonia Fortress by the Temple Mount, but rather the palace by the Tower of David. Now, this really will change the route that most people walk, but hey, the most important thing is that Jesus actually walked this route. And because of this, he made it to Calvary where he died for our sins. So, there you go, a little bit about the Via Dolorosa, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, open up our hearts and our minds to hear your word today and to find things in your word that truly impact our lives and, and help us to grow closer to you and be closer to the path he wants to be on. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in chapter 22 of Luke, and we're going to begin with the 24th verse. And last week, the focus was on, um, the, you know, the whole Lord's Supper, the words of institution, our belief with that. And, and we actually had the, the message before we had the Lord's Supper. This is that we, again, we learned the importance of what that sacrament is all about and how it's the fulfillment of the Passover. Well, today we have a number of different topics. And the first one is on the titled, Who is the Greatest? And so in verse 24, dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So I want to stop there for a second. A dispute. It's amazing whenever you get people together so often what happens? Disputes, right? And here it's over, you know, who is the greatest? And obviously Jesus was really, should have been the greatest of them. But here they're, they're trying to elevate their own positions. In verse 25, And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. 
And so he's kind of laying out first, this, the world does it the way you're talking about here. It's all about putting yourself at the top. It's about control. It's about power. That's the world's way. And obviously the world's way had impacted these disciples. But now he's going to go into God's way. And God's way is contrary to the world. So in verse 26, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Now what's that supposed to mean? Now we're living in a day and age right now that worships youth, okay? That's not the way it was in the time of Jesus. In fact, Jesus lived 33 years. That was the average lifespan for people in that day and age. For those that were elderly, they were treated with respect. If you had gray hair, that was a great thing. And our world's so different today. But obviously what he's saying is that, you know, the, the least would be the youngest. In fact, you think about, for example, the book of Job. There was four different friends of Job who ultimately talked in that dialogue. And who talked first? Which age? The oldest. And who talked last? The youngest. And that's kind of the way it was designed at that point. And so he's saying that, you know, really... Um, if you want to be great, you need to humble yourself. No matter what your position in life. The key is humility. Here is Jesus, the God of the universe in human form. And he's saying, you know what? I'm going to show you what servant is all about. God becoming the ultimate servant. In verse 27. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. So worldly speaking, it's the one who reclines, the one who's being served is considered the greatest according to worldly standards. But, but Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to be the one that's going to serve. We're living in this society of, of being served. God's kingdom is so different than all of this. Anybody here grew up in the Midwest with snow? And like, you know, I think back to the playground where my, my elementary school in particular, and in Minnesota, the snow did not melt until spring, okay? And so the snow plows come in and they push the snow into what? These big, huge piles, these big, huge heaps. And when you're a little kid, those things seem like mountains. And you play king of the mountain, and you're all, we're all running, trying to get the top of this big pile of snow. And we're just pulling people down. You get to the top, it's like, yeah. And how long are you up there? About five seconds. Someone pushes you off, you go crashing right back down. And so it is with the world. Someone rises to power, then they fall. One kingdom comes to the top, then it falls. Things in this world are that way. But Jesus is saying something very countercultural. He's saying, you don't ascend into greatness, you descend into greatness. It's not about being in control, it's about serving. He goes on, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jesus had every right to be ticked off at his disciples, okay? 
Here he's, you know, getting closer to um, his own personal death, and, and they're griping over who thinks they're the greatest. But yet he's treating them with such respect. He's, he's teaching them. You know, he's teaching them the very end. It's about serving. You know, I think I shared this in the, um, the morning service a few weeks back about the Apostles' Creed. Okay, there's three articles in the Apostles' Creed. And the second article talks about who? About Jesus, okay? And there are 12 things in that creed. In fact, some people wonder, okay, why do we do the creed? And it's a great, you know, layout of who God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so I want you to think about, there's, there's 12 different characteristics. Six talk about his humiliation, and six talk about his exaltation. It's like a clock, okay? So this is, you know, 12 o'clock here, okay? He was conceived, born, suffered, crucified, died, and he was buried. Okay, that's his humiliation. Okay, you think about the section from Philippians 2 that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. How he completely humbled himself even to the point of death. And that's his humiliation, his exaltation. Okay. So it was, again, it was, so it's conceived, born, suffered, crucified, died, and buried, descended into hell, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and will come again and will judge the living and the dead. That's his exaltation. Okay, so before he was exalted, he was first what? Completely humbled. And completely contrary to the world, but now he's saying to his disciples, in the same vein here, that one day you're going to be sitting on thrones. And they're going to learn about this whole thing about servanthood leadership because pretty much every one of them, except for Judas, is, you know, he's going to betray, but they're all going to die for their faith, except for John who lived to an older age. However, history tells us he was boiled in boiling oil and miraculously survived. And Jesus is saying, one day you're going to be on thrones in heaven. Now, where is that in the Bible? Do you realize it's in Revelation? I want to read to you from um, Revelation 4, chapter 4, verse 4. And it says, it talks about around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on that thrones were the 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 24 thrones. 12 for the 12 tribes, and 12 for what? The disciples, okay? So it is going to be fulfilled. One day we get to heaven, we're going to see um, those disciples as, as leaders, but ultimately they learn too that the key is you descend into greatness. They got over their um, dispute, and they kind of learned about servanthood as they continued to serve Jesus and, and change the world. Let's jump to verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now Jesus does this quite often where he's laying out what's going to happen before it happens. But with his disciples, as he's laying these things out, what's happening to them? Complete flyby. They're not getting it whatsoever. They're just clueless. But what's so cool here is that Jesus is telling Peter, you're going to betray me, but then when it's all said and done, you're going to do amazing things. He's laying out the whole picture. And Peter's going to grasp it one step at a time. 
Now Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And so he's like, I would never betray you, okay? I'm not going to do that, but Jesus can already see what? He knows what's going to happen before it happens. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. That'll be continued later, but one thing I want you to realize here is there's always a bigger picture. In life, we all go through failure sometimes, don't we? But I want you to know something. It's also possible to fail forward, okay? You descend into greatness, but in Jesus' kingdom so often we can fail forward. That through our failures we grow. And we see that very thing with Peter and with many people in the Bible, how their failures help them to grow. You know, when I was in Michigan, they have um, this, the Henry Ford Museum. Anybody ever been there before? Just an amazing place. If you ever get to Michigan, check it out. It's incredible. And they had this one area where it was Thomas Edison's laboratory. And it was there where he actually, at one point, he, he was with Henry Ford in that, that very place. And, and at one point, you know, he was trying to develop a light bulb. He had failed a thousand times. And someone said to him, aren't you going to quit? Why don't you just quit? You just, you failed a thousand times. He goes, with each failure, I get one step closer to the solution. He didn't quit. And so often in life, there's going to be failures, but to realize that we can grow through them and learn and keep moving forward. Let's go to verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. Okay, this is the way it was before. They were doing their, you know, their journeys, different parts of the then known world and being received, you know, getting hospitality, being taken care of. You know, there were still challenges here and there, but nothing like what is about to happen. Because now he's going to lay out the reality of what they're going to face. He's going to tell them what's going to happen before it happens. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered, he, he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And he said, look, Lord, here are two swords. He said to them, it is enough. What's he really saying here? Things are going to change. It went pretty easy before. Everything was provided. But it's going to get tough because a persecution is going to start. Your lives are going to be in danger. It's going to get really difficult. And it's going to start with himself. He's saying it's going to, because I'm going to be a number of the transgressors. He's warning them about what's about to happen. Verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Okay, so we see this in the scriptures a lot. That Jesus, who is God in human form, is praying to God. Okay, the Father. Why would God be praying to God? 
because he's also what? He's a man. He's human. And we're going to see in this section, we're going to see that humanness, how much he's like any one of us as far as his human nature. He's saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, he knows what's about to happen. He knows he's going to suffer the most painful form of death ever invented by mankind the next day. And he's saying, Father, if there's another way, how about if we, we do that? But it's not about my will. It's all about what? Your will. Okay? It's like we're seeing parts of the Lord's Prayer in here about temptation, about thy will be done. And by the way, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you know, it's, it's such an incredible outline to follow on, on how to pray. It's, you know, we, we pray it sometimes, it's like we say it so many times, sometimes we don't maybe think about the words, but sometime when, you, when you're praying at night, just take one petition of the Lord's Prayer at a time, like, Our Father who art in heaven, and stop for a moment and just pray about who God is as our Heavenly Father. Hallowed be thy name, about worshiping God, and take some time and just worship God for who he is. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's purpose. And his purpose is he, that Jesus came to earth that one day we can go where? To heaven, but also to be kingdom people even now. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, we're, we're praying for sustenance, not just for ourselves, but for everybody in the world. And pray for that. Pray for God. We help the people that are starving this world to find what they need. And, but whenever you pray, be ready for God to use you. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness is the most incredible miracle we can possibly receive. But we're not just praying for our forgiveness. We're praying for whose forgiveness? I mean, it's a huge prayer. We're praying for the whole world to be saved when we pray that. Because if everybody has their sins forgiven, guess who goes to heaven? Everybody? That's a huge prayer. Sometimes I think our prayers are, they're, they're set with too low of a bar. He's showing us pray big. And then he's talking about, the last part is about temptation. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. What a great prayer for us to remember. And, and I can just see Jesus like he's praying through that right now, even during this time while he's there in the garden. In 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And so it's like the, the father was, was hearing him and sends this angel to, to comfort him because guess who's not doing a very good job of comforting him at that time? His disciples. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now this is a medical condition that truly can happen under incredible stress. If your body experienced stress to the degree that Jesus was, you know, feeling at that point, drops of blood can come through your pores. Okay, he knows what's going to happen before it happens. You know, he knew everything before it happened. That can be good, and it can be really bad. I think sometimes for we as mortal human beings, it's sometimes nice being ignorant, not knowing what's going to happen next. He didn't, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew he was going to experience this painful form of death and his body's already crying out in agony to the point where blood is coming through his pores. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? 
Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But guess what? They're wiped out. They're having their little personal pity parties and just says, for sorrow. Sleeping for sorrow. In verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? This was a normal greeting, okay? This greetings of disciples. So they, you know, it's kind of strange for we as men to think of, you know, kissing like that, but that's what their, their custom was all about. And remember before we saw that Judas had been, what happened with as far as with Satan? Satan had entered him, okay? And by the way, before we see that um, Jesus talks about Peter, that, you know, Satan's going to tempt him, but it doesn't say that um, Peter was ever, you know, basically, you know, that Satan did not enter into Peter, okay? He tempted him. But here, you know, Judas now is fulfilling, you know, a very evil thing. 49, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, Luke is what? He's a doctor. He's a detail guy. So it's not just ear. It's the right ear, okay? But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, I don't know of any of you, but even if I was on the other side at this point, and I see some guy's ear get cut off, and then Jesus goes and picks up the ear and puts it back on there, and it's perfectly fine, I think, hey, let him go. <laughs> this guy's amazing. He let him go. That's not what's going to happen here. That's how evil these people have become. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Why not? Because they're afraid of who? The people. Remember, Jerusalem is packed with people. This is a Passover. The population possibly four times the normal population with all the people coming in. And they're afraid of how the people are going to react. So they're doing this whole thing undercover in darkness, which is so often the way that evil's carried out. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. You know, one thing we see about Jesus is that he was never afraid to speak the truth. This morning we had a sermon talking about connecting our minds and our mouth. And we talked about the importance of speaking the truth. Jesus never shied away from the truth. Even when it's pretty strong. You know, sometimes we hold back. And we need to speak the truth. And Jesus is telling these guys the truth. They are on the dark side here. They're following the force of evil. 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and, and said, You also are one of them. Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisting, saying, Certainly this man also was with him. For he 
too, is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. You know, each gospel account brings in something more distinct. And, and Luke brings in something here really distinct. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Who was right there? He's following Jesus. And then with that third denial, Jesus turns and looks right at him. Can you imagine that? At that point, if you were Peter, how would you feel? Feel like dirt. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, I can understand his weeping and just his feeling so terrible. But Jesus already said to him what? You're going to do this, but what's going to happen on the other side? It's going to work out. You're going to do amazing things. He can't, at this point, grasp that because he's in the moment. And so often in life, I think it's really important for us to realize this, that God always has a grand plan. And when you're going through some of the difficulties of life, it's hard to understand. It's hard to, to see that. It's hard to, you know, to, to see through the, you know, all the stuff that's in the way. But does God find a way for us? He does. Things do work out. There's always going to be redemption. Okay? There's always going to be redemption. Even, this may sound really bad, but the worst thing can happen to us in this life is, I guess you can say worldly speaking, is we die. But really, spiritually speaking, what is, it's the best thing that can happen to us, right? That's the ultimate redemption. With Jesus on our side, we cannot lose as long as we keep our trust in him. 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus into custody were mocking him as he beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy. Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now they, they arrest him in darkness. The Sanhedrin, the council cannot meet until the sun comes up. And so he's in holding during this time. It's a temple guard who's watching over him, and they're abusing him. And Luke goes to say they, they're blaspheming him, okay? And what's interesting about this, Jesus is going to be on trial for blasphemy himself, for claiming to be the Son of God. He's going to be on trial for being who he really was. But they didn't realize it. In 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, I, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now I want to point something out here. This group of people were all about the law. They had very detailed laws that they were to follow. 
One of the laws is that if they're putting someone on trial for a death sentence type of thing, they have to vote. It's got to be a majority that votes in favor of the death. There's nothing in any of the accounts in Scripture that that ever happened. Basically, the leaders say, we're just going to kill him. We're not going to take a vote. We're just going to do it. The second thing is, according to their laws, that if someone is sentenced to death, they were to wait a couple days until they formally issued that sentence to have time for mercy. They're not following what? Their own laws. They're so determined to get rid of him that they're breaking their own laws to do it. And that was the whole basis of what they're all about is legalism and laws. That's how far that church that was supposed to represent God had strayed. It's just so heartbreaking to think that the church that was supposed to be representing God killed God's son. And we have to be so careful today as God's church to remember where we started from today about humility, about servanthood. You know, in the world today, the gap between Christian churches in the world is just it's widening. Okay, why do you think that is? I think a lot of times, you know, people in the world, they just think that we're just out of touch. Okay, they think we're out of touch. They think we're judgmental. They think we're mean. And that's why I just think it's so important for us to, to go out there, representing Jesus as servants, to go out there and keep serving and serving, even people that treat us terribly. And just pray for God to give us the opportunities to help turn hearts to realize that the Christians, we're not a bunch of whack jobs, okay? If we truly follow Jesus and do things his way, people are going to really appreciate us more and more. And I think what's happening in our society is too much of a compartmentalization. And I'm not saying it's the case with you. But what happens here is, is really important. But what happens out there is equally important. I think there's just too many Christians It's like, I do my church thing, I, I put on my, my church clothes or whatever, and I do my, my hour, and then I'm incognito the rest of the week. It's tough out there. There's persecution, but what we see here with Jesus is he faced it head on, okay? Don't be afraid to stand up for Jesus, and look what he did for us. And so I'm going to end this point right here, and we're going to be picking up with chapter 23 um, next week. Let's, let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you went through so much for us. As we think about these events which we talked about today, there were those that arrested you, and they were totally against you. There was Judas, and he betrayed you. There were the disciples, and they ran in fear, and even Peter denied you. And you were there all alone. And you kept moving forward. And we just thank you for taking those brave steps. And Lord, help us to follow in that example. Help us to never abandon you. And the freedom you've given to us by dying and rising for us and opening the way to heaven, Lord, help us to dedicate our lives to truly serving you and being your ambassadors in this world, this world that so desperately needs your truth. We pray this in your name. Amen.